As always, it is a joy, a humble joy, a, a, a thankful joy to um, be called upon to preach in, in, in Pastor Steve's place. I, I, I'm always excited and humbled at the same time. I'm, I'm excited this morning because I need to hear this sermon again. Uh, this was a, a sermon that was uh, prepared and preached to our students at summer camp, and it was very helpful to me. And I believe it was helpful to our students as well. To those students out there, you can listen to it again. Don't worry. But let me ask you this question. Have you ever wondered, have you ever wondered why sinners seem to prosper and why the godly seem to always be suffering? Have you ever asked questions like, why did I lose my job? Why did I lose that stable income? Uh, How come sinners don't seem to have these problems that I have with chronic illness? How come the wicked never seem to get headaches? Why, Why did he get a raise and not me? Doesn't God know what kind of person he is? Why did she get that impressive sports scholarship to that big school? I'm the one trying to live for Jesus. Why does she not seem to struggle with self-image problems? She doesn't love God. She's not trying to please Him. Why does that young man who loves the Lord, who has a young and beautiful family die of cancer? Well, the man who doesn't seem to care about his kids at all lives a long and lonely life. Why why did my mom have to die? They don't even seem to care about their mom. We... We ask these questions all the time. As a matter of fact, Scripture asks these questions all the time. We see in Job 21, 9 through 14, Job talks this way. He says about the people around him, Their houses are safe from fear, and no rod of God is upon them. Their bulls breed without fail. Their cows calf and do not miscarry. They send out their little boys like a flock and their children dance. They sing to the tambourine and the lyre and rejoice to the sound of the pipe. They spend their days in prosperity and in peace. They go down to Sheol. They say to God, depart from us. We do not desire the knowledge of your ways. Now, if you've ever asked these questions, then, as my dad would say, you're, you're having a Psalm 73 kind of day. And you need to hear Psalm 73 this day. Psalm 73 in your Bible, it's the beginning of book 3 in the Psalms. We see this struggle in the most honest way. It is a very unique perspective on this struggle because unlike Job, unlike David, when they tackle these issues, Asaph approaches it more honest. He kind of lets us on the inside of his sinful thoughts and doubts. It's like one of those behind-the-scenes documentaries on your favorite sports team or public figure where you get to see all the sweat, the spit, the blood, the anger. 
He lets us on the inside of these questions. Asaph shows us a man of God struggling and fighting for spiritual perspective in a godless world. Are you having a Psalm 73 kind of day? Let's read God's Word together. Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. And their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues strut through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And and they say, how can God know? There is no knowledge in the Most High. Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Now, if I had had said, I I will speak this, I I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But, But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until... Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you have set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in the moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fall and fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you, but for me. It is good to be near to God. I have made the Lord my refuge, that I may tell of your works. So who was Asaph? Who was this man who writes this highly honest psalm? Well, he, he, he wrote many psalms. We, we, have, we see 
a man by the name of Asaph, probably the same man, write 12 other psalms, Psalm 50 and then Psalm 73 through 83. Um, um, He and his brother Herman were appointed by David as musicians to lead God's people in worship. They seem to be um, able to both play instruments and sing, because it says in 1 Chronicles 16.16, they were appointed as singers who should play loudly on musical instruments, on harps and lyres and symbols to raise sounds of joy. We see Asaph leading the people in worship when the ark is brought to Jerusalem during King David's reign. He is also seen leading God's people in worship before the ark of the covenant a little bit later. Uh, he, he is a key spiritual leader for the people of God. Matter of fact, it, some people say he started a school. You see these sons of Asaph running all around through Scripture. And the point of this historical background is just to say these are not questions of uh, spiritual immaturity. Uh, This is a godly man who loves God, loves God's people, and is still struggling with a sinful world. This is a leader of worship, a man who should know God, struggling with a problem. And if you find yourself asking the same questions that that Asaph asks, you, you, you must... You must follow Asaph's guide here for godly thinking in a seemingly godless world. So let's follow Asaph's guide. Uh, we have a five-part journey to deepened faith here. A five-part journey to deepened faith. We have the totter, the temptation, the turn, the truth, and the triumph. But I'll go back over those. And, and just a little disclaimer, I'm not trying to make these points um, even. I'm just following the bumps and the bruises of our passage. So if you get fearful thinking, man, he's taking a frighteningly long time on this one point, don't worry. I'm going to take a frighteningly short time on another point later on. So first off, let's look at the totter. The totter. Uh, The definition of the word totter is to move about in an unstable or feeble way. Um, Asaph is picturing life like a, a road following. It's a, it's a common Christian and um, biblical metaphor, walking, following after God. And he's feeling like he is about to fall. Now, youth pastor illustration. There is this game in youth ministry called the Dizzy Bat. And it's really fun because it totally works off of this premise of dizziness. You take this bat and you have two teams line up, one team over there, one team over there. You do this relay where one team runs over there, does something really complicated, runs back here, and then tag teams. Now the key to it, and the thing that makes it really funny, is every time they tag team, the person grabs the bat, puts it on their head, puts it to the ground, and and spins around five times so they get all dizzy and stuff. Youth minister, baby. Uh... Just a personal little story. One time we did this at Anchored, and one of my leaders, Bobby Austin, ran right into a rose bush. It was the greatest thing I've ever seen. It was terrible. It was painful, but it was hilarious. He is tottering, unstable. It, this, is, this, is, this is referring to somebody who is struggling to walk straight. Uh, why is Asaph tottering here? Well, he is envious, as we see. He, As for me, in verse 2, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Why? For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. 
uh, envious. What does it mean to be envious? It is this deep, inward displeasure at the prosperity of others. I envy you. I have this deep, inward, insidious displeasure over your prosperity and, and my lack of it. Now, envy doesn't need a lot of reasons to be envious. You don't need to have a big, huge history on the person you're envious of. Hey, you don't deserve this. I do. You, you can be envious towards anybody. You can be envious towards an unbeliever. You can be envious towards a believer. Um, scripture talks about this in both ways. As a matter of fact, the Ten Commandments, God talks about not coveting. Don't covet your neighbor's cattle or his wife or anything that belongs to your neighbor. But today we're not talking about envy towards other believers. We're talking about envy towards the world around us. And in all things, just like it says in the Ten Commandments and in Colossians 3, 5, all envy or covetousness is in direct competition to your worship of God. Envy, covetousness, is idolatry. Or, to say it another way, when you are envious or covetous of the wicked, you are saying to God, your grace is not enough. Your grace is insufficient for me. It is contrary to worship. But, but back to Asaph. Asaph teaches us some very important and helpful things about envy. The main thing is this. Envy is a, a sin of pride that distorts your vision. Envy is, is a sin of pride that distorts your vision. First off, it is a sin of pride. Envy is proud. Why? It's, there's this displeasure there in envy. Because you think you deserve something else. You think you have earned something better. And you forget that as a forgiven sinner, you don't deserve anything good in your life. You forget that as a Christian, everything you experience in this life is something that you don't deserve. In John 15, 2, God's pruning, God's pruning in our life, even that is an undeserved grace. In Hebrews 12, 10, God's fatherly discipline. He disciplines those he loves. Even his discipline is an undeserved grace. Envy is a sin of pride. It thinks you deserve something better, and it's not thinking about the world in reality, according to Scripture. But notice, especially, envy is a distorter of your vision, a distorter of reality. For those of you who are familiar with that little thing on your phone called Snapchat, you understand this perfectly. You can put filters of your face for other people to see. So it looks like you've got movie star looks. You can look like a cat. You can look like a rock star. You can distort other people's perceptions of you through a filter. Envy is kind of like putting little filters over your eyes and seeing the world through distorted vision. Don't believe me? Let's look at Asaph's vision. We don't have enough time to deal with all of these things in detail. We're just going to kind of skim over the top. But let's look at his distorted vision. First off, Asaph is saying, he's seeing the world and he says, oh, they seem to live such long and such happy lives. I look out there and I just see long and happy lives. Verse 4, they have no pangs unto death. 
Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Pangs, that that refers to, to literally bonds or chains. They don't carry around pain in their life. He is saying they don't have any difficulties. They don't seem to have any problems. They just seem to go happy on their way. But this is really a, a distorted vision because envy doesn't see all the anxieties and the burdens that a happy-go-lucky life requires, right? You don't see that. You just see the outside of it. Another thing Asaph says is, they all are so beautiful and so attractive. All of them. Every single one of them. Verse 4, their bodies are fat and sleek. In, in, in this time, in the ancient mind, fat meant wealth, it meant riches. Everybody around me who doesn't love God seems to be so good-looking. But this is a distorted vision. Envy doesn't see the countless hours spent in front of the mirror. Another thing Asaph says, they, they are so confident They're so confident and sure of themselves. Verse 6, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. It's like this. They're they're parading their sins against God as if they're virtues, as, as if they're garments and necklaces. Look at this. How impressive. They seem to be getting away with everything and proud of it. But once again, it's a distorter. It doesn't see the inner insecurity. It doesn't feel what's behind all of that boasting and that motivation, that insecurity, that deep fear that people won't like you, so you have to be louder than the rest of them. Another thing Asaph says, they never have to say no. They can do whatever they want. Verse 7, their eyes swell out. Through fatness. Their heart overflows with follies. The NAS uh, translates that second half. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They, they can follow their heart's desires wherever it takes them with seemingly no consequences, no hindrances. They never have to put a gate in front of their eyes, in front of their hands, in front of their lips, in front of their mind. They can do whatever they want. But once again, this is a distorted vision of the world. Envy doesn't see all the natural consequences that come from unchecked desires. But, but most of all, see this last thing that Asaph sees. They do all this, and while they do it, they have no problem with God. They don't have a problem with God in their life. Verse 8, they scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. Verse 9, they set their mouths against heaven and their tongue struts through the earth. Verse 11, and they say, how can God know? Is there, no, is there knowledge in the most high? It's very curious to me. These people that Asaph is looking at are not atheists. They, they speak as though they are former believers who have been uh, enlightened. God doesn't really see everything you do. God is really quite powerless if you think about it. He's not going to stop me. But this is a, a distorted vision. 
Let me just say it like this. The, the less of a problem that you have with God, the greater the problem you have with God. Right? The less of a problem you sense, you feel with God, the greater the problem you have, reality, have with God. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes disobedience really bothers your conscience, right? Sometimes you're like David in Psalm 32 who says, Day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as the summer. And when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Sometimes sin is really hard on your conscience, but sometimes sin gives you peace and gives you rest and gives you sleep. Think about this. Jonah walks away from God in defiance of God. He says, I do not want to go to Nineveh. And God sends this storm after Jonah, rocking his boat all over the place. And what is Jonah doing? In the midst of the storm, he is sound asleep at peace. The less of a problem you have with God, the greater the problem is that you have with God. Uh, Just two contemporary, very recent illustrations of this. Uh, A former writer, at least I assume he's a former writer, for Hillsong has recently announced that he is genuinely losing his faith. He says, I am genuinely losing my faith. And it doesn't bother me. Like what bothers me is nothing. I'm so happy now. So at peace with the world. It's crazy. And a little closer to home, Joshua Harris said recently in announcing his departure from the faith, my heart is full of gratitude. I can't join in your mourning. I don't view this moment negatively. I feel very much alive and awake. And surprisingly, Hopeful. Maybe the the less of a problem you sense with God, the greater the problem you have with God. Now, now why is Asaph tottering? Well, he, he wants to drink of the fountain that they're drinking, right? He, he's looking at them enjoy this free and easy life, and he's saying, I want some. I deserve some. Matter of fact, this is kind of what he says. He says he's watching people doing it. He's watching people turn back, and he's like, I want to follow those people. Verse 10, therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. Um, His people there, uh, NIV translates it, their people. That's maybe an interpretation. It's literally his people. It seems to be referring to the people who were formerly maybe God's people in God's camp who have now aligned themselves with the wicked who, as Psalm 1 says, who have walked in the counsel of the wicked, stood in the way of sinners, and are now sitting in the seat of scoffers. God's people who have kind of turned away, turned back. This means to reverse directions, to repent. It's our word for repentance in the Old, in the Old Testament, except this is a bad thing. This is 
turning away from God, pulling back, rejecting God, turning away, apostatizing. That's what this turning back is. And notice the reason why they're turning back is they find no fault in them. Or literally, as the uh, Homeland Christian Standard Bible puts it, his people drink in their overflowing words. There's these people among God's people who look at the world and the prosperity around them and they drink it in and they follow after them and they turn away. And here we have Asaph's summary statement in in verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked, all of them, always at ease. They increase in riches. Now, envy unchecked, distorted vision allows, uh, leads you to temptation. So we come to our next point, the temptation. We saw the totter, and now we see the temptation. Verse 13. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Asaph is saying this holiness thing, this purity thing, this integrity thing, this obedience to God from the heart thing, it is futile. It is worthless. It is empty. As one translation puts it, I'm stupid to play by the rules. What has it gotten me? Well, maybe you could say this by being tempted to think integrity with schoolwork is getting me nowhere. Or maybe honesty with my tax returns is pointless. Nobody else is doing it. Guarding my eyes is fruitless. Saving myself from marriage is foolishness. Spending time with the church is meaningless. Why am I doing this? I'm stupid to play by the rules. He explains why he's, he's frustrated in, in verse In verse 14, all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Uh, Stricken, being a Christian, being a follower of God, means you can't be superficial anymore about death, eternity, speech, impurity. You can't be superficial anymore. You're stricken. And he says he's rebuked. Being a Christian means you have to be daily confessing sins. Why? Because sins are being daily exposed. Being a Christian isn't always fun. Being a Christian means you have this ongoing problem with sin in your life. It's called sanctification. You will never be perfect, and you'll have this lingering corruption, and it will bother you. As J.C. Ryle said in his book on holiness, the holiest actions of the holiest saint that ever lived are all more or less full of defects and imperfections. Being a Christian is difficult. It means you're stricken. It means you're rebuked daily. And then now these are Asaph's honest inward thoughts, but, but as he thinks them, and just notice this, This is very fascinating to me. He is careful, very careful. Because in verse 15, he said, If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Yeah, he may have his frustrations, his questions, his confusion, but he still has incredible love, trust, love for God's people, and love for God. Once again, Asaph is a leader of God's people, but he is careful with his frustrations because even though he doesn't understand everything, 
he still loves God and trusts Him. And he's careful who he shares these things with. Well, that's the totter. And there's the temptation. Now, how does he get out of this? Well, I mean, to, to find hope if you are in a situation like this, you need to do something. And so we have the turn next, the turn. You need to leave somewhere. You need to go someplace. And you don't need to just get off on your own in the woods. That's not what this psalm directs us to do. You need to be with certain people. How does he turn? Verse 16 tells us, When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task, verse 17, until, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. What, what is it? What is it about this sanctuary that helps him discern? Was it the sacrificial system? Uh, was it a prophet speaking God's word? Was it the assembly singing? It's very interesting that the psalmist doesn't tell you. So, I conclude, it might be all. All of them. All of the above. Maybe we're meant to conclude it was everything. Everything in the Old Testament temple, tabernacle, is meant to point you to God. And that's what we do here every week at Grace Bible Church. We want to point you to God through our fellowship, through our worship, through our preaching. Everything is to point you to God, to give you awareness of God's truth, awareness of God. Excuse me. Awareness of God comes through hearing preaching, singing truth, fellowship with God's people, remembering even and experiencing God's redemption. In the Old Testament, this came through the, the sacrificial system. And in the church, it comes through baptism and communion. We get to experience, see, taste, feel the truths of redemption. Quite simply, you need to be with God's people. You need to be with God's people if you are going to wage this fight against envy. You need to be regularly with God's people. You need to be frequently with God's people. And you know, you know, it's, it's, it's not because I'm necessarily hearing new things. I need to hear old things. I need to be reminded. I need preaching. I need to hear God's Word proclaimed to me over and over and over again. And this takes us back to who Asaph was. He was the leader of worship. He knew things, but he needed to hear them through preaching. He needed to sing those truths. For example, I came here from seminary, and I came here with a lot of knowledge. I... I knew a lot of what Pastor Steve was talking about every single Sunday, Sunday morning and Sunday night, but I needed to hear it preached. I need it every week. I need to hear it over and over and over again. My family needs to hear it. I need to hear it. I need to be with God's people. I need to be worshiping and praising God. So what, what do you discover when you make gathering with God's people, a priority, what happens when you fill your heart and your mind with truth, what happens in corporate life of worship, what happens when you, as our title says, don't do it alone spiritually. Well, this leads us to our fourth point, the truth. We had the turn, now we have the truth. Well, you remember 
realities. This is why it's so important to gather together with God's people. You need other people in your life to help you remember realities. Uh, Present appearances don't reflect eternal realities. You need to hear this. You need to sing this. You need to remember this. Gathering together with God's people for corporate worship helps you by revealing specifically in this psalm three critical truths. Three critical truths. First off, worship helps you see your sinful world as it truly is. Worship helps you see your sinful world as it truly is. Verse 18, truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. Their lives ultimately are the insecure and unsafe ones. It's kind of interesting how Asaph says this because right before, right before, in, in the first couple of verses, he was saying, hey, I had almost slipped, but when he came to the sanctuary, he says, oh, in light of reality, in light of eternity, they are the ones in slippery places. And he also sees that God is setting them. God is making them. They are all inside God's sovereign judgment and control. Verse 19, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Destroyed in a moment, swept away. They may seem like their lives are going on forever at ease, but they will suddenly come to an unexpected and unready end. Right? Verse 20, they are like a dream. Well, they're living like it's a dream now, but they're about to wake up into a nightmare. And, and when will that be? When God rouses himself. When God responds to the wicked in coming judgment. Now, when is Asaph talking about? Is this a statement of consequences in this life? The wicked will receive kind of God's curse, as we see talked about in the wisdom literature, like pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Well, that sometimes is the case, but I really do think what he's talking about here, he's, he's making a statement about eternal judgment judgment. This refers to God's eschatological, or you could refer to it as end times judgment. Because in this life, the the wicked don't always receive full justice, right? Sometimes sinners get away with things in this life, right? But, but, But ultimately, they will answer. This is speaking about the Lord when he returns. Everyone's sin, that's mine, that's yours, everyone's sin will be either one of two things. It'll either be paid in full or it will be repaid in full. Where are you going to stand on that day? And by the way, the reason we gather here together is not because we think we're more special than everyone else, not that we think we're, we're in, in one sense, better We gather here together because God has had grace and mercy on us. Because our sin, your sin, my sin should be repaid in full. But instead of that, God pours the full weight of his wrath and his holiness on Christ so that you can stand forgiven and redeemed. This judgment coming is your judgment but Christ took it for you. The next critical truth revealed in worship. Worship not only helps you see the sinful world as it is, but worship helps you see your sinful self as you are. You need worship because you need to see yourself. 
Verse 21 When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. He's saying I was acting like a dense idiot, a fool. This is how believers in the Bible refer to themselves when they're being foolish, stubborn. Once again, Psalm 32, verse 9. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit or bridle, or it will not stay near you. And you know this from personal experience. If you, if you are a, a child of God, you sometimes are out there in the world thinking thoughts, doubts, frustrations, confusions, and then you come together with God's people, and then you're like, what, what was I thinking? Why was I thinking like that? The final critical truth revealed in worship. Worship helps you see your good God as he is. Worship helps you see your sinful world as it is. Worship helps you see your sinful self as you are. But most important, most critical, worship, gathering together with God's people for for preaching, for, for praising, for fellowship, helps you see your God as he is. Verse 23, Nevertheless, I was brutish and ignorant like a beast, but nevertheless, I am continually with you. But this is clearly not a statement of Asaph saying, well, by my ability, by my perseverance, I I kept up with you. I continued in the faith. I endured, I held on to the faith. No, this is, this is an ultimate expression of realizing that, hey, you are the one who has been holding me fast, not the other way around. You have been continually with me. There's this song. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, He will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so, He will hold me fast. Also, He says, You hold my right hand. And and the nuance of the verb is really just Asaph looking at his life, so to speak, from the Goodyear blimp. He is seeing all of it all at once, and he is saying, you are the one who is holding my right hand. A similar verse to this is when we see Paul declare in glory in Romans 8.30, whom he predestined, he called, those whom he called, he justified, those whom he justified, he glorified. And, and, And this is very encouraging, because look at this. He's saying, you hold my right hand. It's not, I'm holding your right hand. It's, you're holding my right hand. The right hand frequently refers to the dominant or the the favored hand. This is your strength, your might, your power. When you step back and look at your life from the Goodyear blimp of God's grace and mercy in your life, you say, hey, You are the one holding my strength. Or to say it another way, you are the reason that I came to church today. My best moments. You are the one holding me fast. Or or think about it in another way, maybe a little bit more simply, that that you can understand. 
Why is your child safe when your child crosses the street? It's because you are holding their hand. They are crossing a dangerous intersection and they are safe because you are holding them. That is what the believer says when they look at their life. You hold my right hand. And then he says something else. You guide me with your counsel. And of course here he's, he's kind of looking at life, his life from the sideline camera, so to speak, showing a progressive kind of play-by-play action. Every day you guide me. You guide me. You guide me with your counsel. God is not distant. He is a daily source of direction and of strength. And of course we know that this... Source of counsel comes daily from God's word. Your word is a light to my feet, the psalmist says. And then he says, you will receive me. You will receive me to glory. This is a telescope of faith, so to speak. You, you see God's holding grace, but you also see it sustaining you for your future full salvation. As Philippians 1.6 says, he will... He will bring his good work to completion. And, and by the way, he will receive you. This is not like a kind of like a, a wedding line receiving. You know, wedding line receiving. Oh, I didn't even know you were coming. Thanks for coming. I, I didn't expect to see you here. Thank you. I was just waiting for you, and, and you just arrived. Thank you for coming. This is, this is kind of a God will hold you fast, so to speak. This is the same word, receiving, that, that is used of Enoch in Genesis 5.24 when God receives him to glory, brings him to glory. It's used in the psalm we talked about earlier, of Psalm 49.15, the, the believer's humble faith that God will deliver him from death. God will receive him. I, I love the verse in, in Jude Jude 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present, to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. And Ephesians says something similar to this. Ephesians 5, 25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that, so that, verse 27, he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus is very involved in receiving you to glory. This is future hope. God will bring me home. Now, if it wasn't clear before, it's sure sharp to us now. This is not just a hope of reversal in this life's circumstances. This is a statement of eternal hope. Eternal hope. Yes, Old Testament believers had a hope that could face death. Sometimes righteous people died while suffering, but their faith transcends death. Old Testament, New Testament. Sometimes the pure in heart do not experience good things in this life, but they hold something more precious than life. They hold God. Sometimes their flesh and their heart might fail, but as Psalm 73 says, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Yes, the sanctuary helps you see the sinful world as it is. It helps you see yourself as you are. But most of all, most importantly, it helps you see your good God who is holding you 
the best. And so, and so, when you see this, when you understand this, you, you must conclude in these beautiful words that our psalmist concludes with, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth, not a neighbor, not some new toy, that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. When you come and fellowship with God's people and worship and praise your Savior with God's people and hear God's Word to you, God is the most important person in your life. You see Him as that. When you know that He is grasping you, when you know that He is guiding your right hand, when you know that He is bringing you to glory, He is the most important person in your life. And you say, Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing that I desire on earth besides you. And lastly, we see the triumph. The triumph. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. But you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge, that I may tell of your works. How is this a triumph? How has this journey through envy produced triumphant, deepened faith? Well, look at the psalm. Now, some, some people picture, picture this psalm as a circle. It kind of ends the way it begins. Right? Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And then it ends, verse 28. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge. It, it begins with goodness, and it ends with goodness. But, but it's not just a circle. It's a progression, is it not? Asaph moves from talking about God to talking to God. Asaph moves from talking about God's relationship to other people to talking about God's relationship to Him. Notice the difference. For me, that's personal conviction. It is good to be near God. This is a faith that walks after God. And then look at this. There's this witnessing desire. You proclaim what you most enjoy. I will tell. I will tell of your works because you are my greatest treasure. He has struggled with honest envy, but God has brought him through it to his sanctuary. And now he emerges with deepened faith. So there's Asaph's five-part journey. He, he totters. He's tempted. But he turns. He hears. He sees. He enjoys truth. And he experiences triumph. Now, now how could we conclude this sermon? Well, I, I think this psalm stares you right at the face. And it tells you, don't be proud. Don't be proud. You can't do it alone. The person who thinks they can do it alone is not availing themselves of the means of grace that God freely gives them in the people of God. 
Don't be proud. But, but you know what conclusion I really want to make? Don't be foolish. Don't be foolish. Right? Come to the fountain of God's mercy, God's means of grace in the local church. Enjoy it. Embrace it. Participate in it. It is God's mercy and grace in your life. Come to the fountain. Don't be foolish. Don't be arrogant, but don't miss out. Don't miss out on the work God wants to do in your life through the local church. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful for your word that helps us where we struggle. It is more honest with our sin than we are sometimes. And we are so thankful for that. We pray that it would do a work in your people this day for your glory and for our joy. In your name, amen.